Ночью, ровно в 4 часа, 22 тысячи орудий внезапно ударили по вражеской обороне. Good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist Leninist Studies. Today is January 31st, 2023. Uh, today is actually the 80th anniversary of the surrender of the Nazi general at Stalingrad. Uh, Thursday will be the actual 80th anniversary of the end of the Battle of Stalingrad, the victory at the Battle of Stalingrad. And that is what our class this week is on. All right, uh, comrade, you want to give us a little bit of a uh, start up to this? Yes, comrade. First, that song we just played, it's called The Sacred War. I believe you heard it before in our class. But anyway, that song is what is considered the national anthem of the Great Patriotic War. As you know, the war started on June 22nd, 41. Within 48 hours, this guy named Alexander Alexandrov, the Red Army Choir, he composed its song, The uh, Sacred War. And it's played every May 9th at the Victory Day Parade on Moscow. Uh, it's played there uh, at the very beginning, at 10 a.m. precisely. Okay. So uh, we're going to have uh, three parts in this. The first part is a prelude to Stalingrad. The second part is a timeline of the battle, the main, um, the main stages. And the third is the aftermath. Okay. 
So um, we're going to start now with the prelude. Okay, comrade. So the invasion of the USSR began on June 22nd, 41, codenamed Barbarossa. It was the largest invasion force the world had ever seen. 3.8 million soldiers on an 1,800 miles long front, stretching from the White Sea in the far north to the Black Sea in the south. Hitler threw his entire force into the invasion all at once from the very first hour. Soviet defenses were powerless to stop it. Germany advanced at a rapid pace throughout the whole front with three objectives, Leningrad, Moscow, and Kiev. Entire Soviet armies were encircled. In September, the Wehrmacht surrounded Leningrad and it captured Kiev. By November, it was at Moscow's doorsteps. The Red Army was able to launch a counter-offensive in December, and the Germans were pushed back 200 miles west. Moscow didn't fall. For the first time, the alleged invincible Wehrmacht was beaten. By the end of 41, the German army had captured 3 million Russian POWs. And by February 42, 2 million of those were dead. The whole of Crimea was in German hands by the fall of 41, except for Sebastopol that continued a stubborn resistance. The Red Army managed to land 40,000 troops in the Kerch Peninsula at the eastern tip of the Crimea by the end of December 41. By the way, the Kerch Peninsula, if you remember last summer, uh, the Ukrats, the Ukrainians, they uh, destroyed the bridge of Crimea. It joins Russia proper to the Kerch Peninsula. So you know what they did. Okay. But in May 42, they suffered a disastrous defeat and retreated towards Russia proper across the Sea of Azov. At the same time, the Red Army suffered another defeat at Kharkov. You all know Kharkov, you know, because of what's happening in Ukraine right now, right? And it opened wide the Donbass to the Wehrmacht. Finally, the fortress of Sebastopol on the Black Sea in Crimea fell in June 42, after an heroic resistance of nine months. It was an orderly withdrawal directed by the Soviet Navy. Sebastopol was a defeat, but unlike Kerch and Kharkov, it was a horrible defeat. And so began the dark summer of 1942 with three defeats back to back. Hitler was now ready for his master plan, Operation Blau, pushing to the Don and the Volga, conquer Stalingrad, and at the same time, pushing towards the, the Caucasus and the Baku oil fields right by the Caspian Sea. If successful, Hitler believed it would bring Turkey into the war on Germany's side and also open the door to Iran, Iraq, and ultimately India. Hitler's plan was ambitious, 
especially capturing Stalingrad and the Caucasus, simultaneously, not one at a time. Okay, I just wanted to say the Baku oil fields that are, were just re uh, referenced are still very relevant today. Uh, British Petroleum actually gets 30% of all of the crude oil for the UK out of the Baku oil fields. That is why Azerbaijan is on the side of NATO and Israel in this upcoming battle against Armenia. Just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for once, I actually have some a little bit of historical t uh, context here that I would like to relate to the modern day. And for anybody, even on YouTube or whatever, who's hearing this for the first time, this adds some explanation as to why Putin uh, acted first. So um, Stalin, the Soviets had a spy in Japan called Richard Sorge. And long story short, he warned Stalin that the Nazis would invade and for whatever reason, and comrades can clarify, but Stalin basically didn't believe him. And we all know what happened, right? Uh, the Nazis invaded. So that's why I think Putin did the first thing. He will not have what happened in World War II ever happen again. Thank you for your time. Yes, and I want to add to that as well, that historically, uh, Ukraine uh, and, and to a certain extent, Belarus as well, has been basically the highway that Western powers have used to invade Russia during the Russian Empire, during the Soviet Union, and now with the Russian Federation. So it's it's really important to keep that kind of geography in mind, comrades. Yeah, I can give clarification to comrade and comment regarding Sorge and uh, Stalin. Um, during this period, comrades will have to remember, um, there was a lot of intrigue within the NKVD. You had rats within the NKVD. You had people like uh, Yagoda. You had people like Yezhov, who was later executed for his crimes. Um, there was a lot of intrigue, and this is normal for a lot of intelligence agencies and a lot of like spies. There's double agents, triple agents, and it's a very murky field. The NKVD was getting intelligence from all over the place, from inside Germany, Japan, and other Axis nations on what the Germans were planning to do. Um, and if you listen to Groverfer and even bourgeois historians like uh, Stephen Kotkin, um, the conclusion is that the Soviets did prepare for the German invasion. It's just that they didn't know exactly when and with what strength the Germans were going to strike. Um, they were getting mixed reports from everywhere. Some people said the Germans were going to attack in spring of 1941. Some people said summer. Some people said fall. Um, and the Soviet Union, although it took heavy losses in the initial battles in the summer of 1941, um, those losses really did help ground down the German army. They prevented the Germans from from basically using the logistical networks and the state and the roads that the Soviets built. And it, it really, the casualties that Germany took in 1941 were critical towards its loss in the end with its lack of trained NCO officers. I also want to give context to what the uh, Soviet uh, Politburo thought with the uh, so being uh, Felix Turyev's interviews with uh, Vyacheslav Molotov, uh, Stalin's right-hand man. Uh, more long story short, the Soviets knew all the way up to the high command that the Nazis were attacking. And uh, the moral of the story is, is that they were aware of it, but they could not trust uh, the many sources that were coming in that blared the alarm saying that the attack was coming imminently or in this time or that time because they could not basically uh, jump the gun 
uh, activate and mobilize their armies to give the uh, Nazis a, a, you know, basically predisposition to attack, saying the Soviets are going to attack first. So Stalin and the Red Army had to sit on their hands, knowing that the attack was coming, not knowing when, but basically, you know, be prepared for it, but not show that you're being for the border guards and for the uh, leading armies. But it gave enough time for the uh, Ural forces, the uh, factories in the rear of the uh, back lines in Siberia, to prepare. It gave the uh, saboteurs all across the country, which, fun fact, apparently Putin's own uh, family were a part of those uh, saboteurs that torched uh, countrysides and all of that to stop the uh, Nazis from gaining any resources and their long retreat back. And more or less, even the Nazis themselves on the lower side, and according to uh, Steve Carell's, uh, the uh, Nazi general that wrote under a pseudonym, said that the Nazi lower command, the soldiers and the infantry, did not even know they're invading the Nazis. They, I mean, the uh, Soviets, they thought they were going to march through the uh, uh, Ukraine to attack the uh, British and surprise them in India. So when they launched the official attack, they said, holy shit, we're invading the Soviet Union, even though the generals in high command knew it. Just some uh, added context to uh, the political situation. Uh, there was always something that I found really interesting, but I don't think I'd be able to explain it. But I was going to ask, uh, Comrade, could you please explain the Stalin line? There was a line of defenses that went from north to south on the territory. I think it was they had a bunch of like just deep bunkers. Well, from what I understand, uh, you know, there was two frontiers, the frontier before uh, September 39 and the frontier after. So the frontier after wasn't quite prepared uh, at the time, you know, uh, like uh, the breast, uh, lead, the breast, breast area. It wasn't quite prepared, but um, I believe the previous frontier was, pre they were in the transition time. You know, basically Stalin really thought that the war would come in uh, 1942, not 41, because he never thought Hitler would fight on two fronts. Also, he didn't want to give a pretext by do the mobilization, like I said, um, because during World War I, uh, World War I started the day after the Tsar Nikolai Romanov ordered the mobilization of the Russian army. So he wanted to um, get, get more time to prepare, you know. Okay, so the big German summer offensive began on June 28, 42, over a wide front. The Donbass was overran and Lugansk fell on July 19th. Then Rostov by the Sea of Azov fell on July 24th. That is when Stalin put his foot down and issued the order number 227, known as, quote, Soviet soldiers, not a step back. He energized the Red Army, quote, every soldier must be ready to die the death of a hero rather than neglect the duty to his country. And thus began the Battle of Stalingrad. Broadly speaking, it may be divided into eight stages. First stage, July 17th, August 4th. On the strength of not a step back, the Red Army fought stubbornly inside the Don Band and slowed down the Germans, preventing them to capture Stalingrad in one sweep. Second stage, August 5th, August 28th. The German Sixth Army conquered the whole inside of the Don Band and moved towards Stalingrad 
from three directions, south, west, northwest. Third, August 19th, September 3rd, intense fighting between the Don and the Volga. The Germans made it to the Volga just north of Stalingrad. They rejoiced having reached the borders of Asia. Then on August 23rd, Hitler rounded up every single bomber of his entire Luftwaffe, means his Air Force, and he ordered the leveling of the whole city. 40,000 civilians lost their lives that day, one of the bloodiest air raids of World War II. Stalingrad was reduced to a giant pile of rubble. Hitler had hoped the bombing would break Stalingrad's defenders' will to resist. It didn't. But what it did accomplish was to make the city an impossible terrain for tanks maneuvering. And it transformed Stalingrad into the ideal battlefield for close combat, street fighting, close quarters. Stage four. September 4th, September 13th, the Germans were able to squeeze the Red Army from the north and the south. The 67th Soviet Army of General Chuikov was now surrounded and isolated from the rest of Soviet forces, with its back on the western bank of the Volga. The eastern bank of the Volga, the Asian steppe, was all under the Red Army's control. Day after day, night after night, reinforcements were coming in from the eastern bank of the Volga and immediately thrown into battle. Soviet artillery on the eastern bank was continuously pounding German positions right over the heads of the 62nd Army with the Katushas. Five, uh, stage five, September 14th to, to November 18th. It marks the historical legendary stage of the Battle of Stalingrad, the stage that set the defense of Stalingrad as one of mankind's greatest feat of heroism, if not the greatest. A special place in history belongs to the Rodimtsev division. Alexander Rodimtsev, he was a hero of the Spanish Civil War, where he earned the title of hero of the Soviet Union. During the Battle of Stalingrad, he commanded the 13th Guards Rifle Division, 10,000 men strong. It entered the battle on September 14th and was ordered to clear the center of Stalingrad and to occupy Mamayev Kurgan Hill. It's a hundred meters tall, 300 feet, which overlooks the entire city. Rodintsev declared, quote, I am a communist. I have no intention of abandoning the city. Within 24 hours of crossing the Volga, 3,000 guardsmen of the 13th Division had already died in combat. In one building, after running out of ammunition, a guardsman took his bayonet and carved on the wall, quote, Rodimsev's guardsmen fought and died for their country here. It can be said that Rodimsev's guardsmen saved Stalingrad. Out of 10,013 rifle division guardsmen who crossed the Volga, only around 300 survived. Rodimtsev was, was awarded his second title 
of hero of the USSR in 1945. Stage number six, November 19th to December 11th, Stalin, Zhukov, and Vasilevsky conceived a master plan. The Red Army dropped the hammer, launched a counteroffensive that destroyed Italian, Romanian, and German troops outside Stalingrad and trapped the Sixth Army into a cauldron. In German, you call it Kessel, inside Stalingrad. It was the beginning of the end for Hitler's crack army. Stage number seven, December 12th to January 1st, the failed attempt of the Wehrmacht, it was a Manstein division army, I mean, to rescue the encircled Sixth Army, the enlargement of the ring around Stalingrad and the final destruction of Italian Alpini, that's a mountain troops in the down in the Don region. Stage number eight, the last stage, January 2nd to February 2nd, 1943, the agony of the Sixth Army and its final liquidation inside the Stalingrad cauldron, the Kessel. On January 8th, Rokossovsky offered Paulus a capitulation. It was rejected. On January 10th, the Red Army unleashed 7,000 guns and mortars on the Germans who suffered enormous casualties. Another offer at surrender was rejected on January 17th. Okay, final assault began on January 22nd. Some German troops surrendered in groups, but at the same time, some Nazi fanatics killed their own wounded and sick rather than leaving them to Soviet soldiers. On the 30th, Paulus asked Hitler by radio for permission to surrender. The response was no. Instead, Hitler promoted him field marshal. He was a general until that day with orders to resist until death. On a side note, Hitler added that no Prussian or German field marshal had ever surrendered in history. In other words, you can't be taken alive and you must commit suicide, else you would throw shame on Germany. Field Marshal Paulus capitulated the next day, the 31st. That's 80 years ago today. And what remained of the Sixth Army surrendered on February 2nd. Hello, everyone. Yeah, my comment will be directed towards the first round of discussion, but comes to a good time with the second part. And it's the following that because we spoke about the preparations that lead up to the Second World War, it was the following is that Nazi Germany was armed by the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union of the 1920s did not produce things. They didn't have tractors, medical, no industry. And what the Soviet Union did is they worked with Weimar Germany and they had a special tank school. They had a special chemical and artillery school. And they had a special infantry school where officers from Weimar Germany worked in the Soviet Union with Soviet soldiers and the Soviet Union gained technical and scientific uh, advancement, industrial advancement. Uh, and unfortunately, Germany rearmed itself. But the officers during World War II were actually classmates at these Soviet academies, these secret schools. And 
Berlin at the time was the most red city out of Moscow. So the Soviet Union unfortunately got burned on that project of trying to conquer Weimar Germany. Uh, but I wanted to comment on how, why is Stalingrad so important? Stalingrad is important for the following reason, is that the Soviet Union was fighting. They were fighting very hard the whole time. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll finish. Uh, but Stalingrad was where the battle turned, where everything, uh, they stopped going east and then they started going west. And Gennady Zuganov said it best at the 100th anniversary of the Soviet Union. He said, uh, Stalingrad, the Soviet uh, Union was victorious, not uh, for any other reason, but the Soviet system, the Soviet socialist system, not General Winter, not... Well, at the same time, it's very important that we dedicate and, you know, spread knowledge in the West and in America about this about this battle. Understand that this battle was hell on earth for both the Soviet citizen and German soldiers. The Germans called it um, Der Rattenkrieg, meaning the Rat War. Um, people were fighting at, clo at such close ranges. Um, sometimes people would be fighting on different floors of the same building. You'd lob a grenade in into a room, spray it with a submachine gun. This was a battle that was hell on earth. Um, soldiers would use entrenching tools, sharpened entrenching tools when they ran out of ammunition to fight each other. Um, and this, it, it honestly reminds me of what um, of what's going on in Bakhmut as we speak. Um, there's a very intense battle going on there that's critical toward the front in Ukraine. Um, and I, the the casualties, like at Stalingrad and Bakhmut, are very brutal on both sides. Um, I think it's important that we draw a comparison and really look deeply at like just how how lucky we are today to not have to have gone through what our comrades in the Soviet Union had to do to defend their motherland. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to add to that two things. Um, the fact that it's very, you know, alarming that there wasn't a fascist advance towards uh you know, Stalingrad in almost 80 years. Now we see one again uh, with the Ukrainian fascists backed by NATO um, expanding in Russia's direction and fighting them in the east of Ukraine. It's very alarming that we're back at that kind of place in history again. Yes, I just want to have a little uh, note on uh, one thing that's overlooked. One of the things that softened up the Germans because they really occupied about 90% or 95% of Stalingrad, uh, even in the wounds. But one thing they did not know is that the, the Soviet uh, Union had laid out, they charted out the entire Stalingrad all by grids, and they knew where everything was. And what they did is they had a lot of rocket launchers, multiple rocket launchers. They invented them, and they were on wheels. And there were certain overhangs in certain parts of by the Volga. And of course, this was 1940, uh, 40s. This was not today where they have modern spy techniques or spy planes. And what they did is they would roll out in the middle of the night, these rocket launchers, set the parameters for certain areas where Germans, of course, were resting and sleeping in many of these buildings and just launched the rocket, uh, rockets towards a certain area. They slaughtered thousands of Germans. And during the day, the Germans, even when they flew planes overhead, they couldn't see any of these rocket launchers. And at night, seconds. 
they did the same thing, and they did that again for, for some days before the, they reinvaded the Soviet Union, then reinvaded to take back Stalingrad. But by then, they had also softened up the troops, uh, and they the Germans never knew what hit them uh, on that. Thank you. The order 227, uh, what is controversial, and if you watch all these stupid Hollywood movie shit about Stalingrad, you'll see that, uh, like, uh, the blocking detachment, detachment where they shoot their own soldiers, the Soviet armies, that is. Okay, there was only 700 soldiers who were shot by the blocking detachment. But the blocking detachment was really good because it reinforced discipline. And uh, it was welcomed by every single soldier of the Red Army, except the real traitors and, and cowards. Uh, and and uh, they got what was coming to them to begin with. All right, thank you, comrade. And I remembered what I wanted to say on the second part of my uh, comment now was that, uh, the, remember the section where it talks about Hitler bombing Stalingrad, the bombing of Stalingrad. 40,000 people died in a single day. 40,000 people. Here in the United States, we still have so much sorrow in our hearts for a day when 3,000 people died on 9-11. Imagine how many 9-11s that was in one day. Just, you know, in a way of, us comparing what we've gone through to that. It, it was hell on earth. I, I'm not sure if it was Stalingrad or Leningrad or both, but I remember there was also, uh, there was reported cases of people that were so starved during the battle by all this warfare going on around them that they would eat rats, they would eat wallpaper. It was the kind of thing that, it, it, was, it was the kind of event that really made you go to the most desperate, you know, uh, methods of, of staying alive. And, and what's really important to remember at the time is that a lot of the world didn't even think that, that the Soviets would make it through this. And the fact that they did and they actually had the victory there, it really showed the whole world that the you know, whole world war could be turned around. So I just wanted to add that in there. I want to ask, what battle uh, did you say is occurring now? Did you refer to in Ukraine that's happening right now again? Uh, it's currently the Battle of Bakhmut. Of course, though, the, the term I prefer to use for the city is uh, Artems, Artomorsk, which is the Soviet term for the city before the Ukrainians change it to the Tsarist name. Okay. That's right. It was named originally after Comrade Artem. He was a Bolshevik commander. And uh, in 2016, this asshole, uh, Poroshenko, he reversed the name to Bakhmut. So I tell you what, as soon as the city is liberated, it's Artemov. Hey, uh, comrades. Um, I heard a couple months ago about a, um, about a anti-aircraft regiment um, that was uh, completely from a woman's regiment, which was the 1077th regiment, anti-aircraft regiment. And um, I had heard that the 16th Panzer Brigade was just destroyed by this uh by this anti-aircraft regiment of like 83 women and they they did all with anti-flat cannons and uh, uh i guess um, some historians would say that uh it's actually one of the um one of the reasons why uh stalingrad kept its uh supplies and its oil from the Caucasus mountains and all the oil fields over there and it's and, and some of them have actually said that it's one of the reasons why stalingrad um was uh, saved by this regiment also. And I'd like to point that out. Thank you. 
Yeah, uh, to segue again on what um, mentioned, uh, yes, it was true. The uh, all residents, but because most of the men were again in the army itself, it mostly went to women. And yes, they didn't really have anti-aircraft, but they adjusted. And there are pictures showing all of these women that defended uh, Stalingrad until uh, Stalin could get the Red Army in there. And yes, they did a, a, a humongous, wonderfully job, wonderful job, but most of them did die. I mean, they, they were there at their posts, and the only reason why they stopped was because they were dead. But they did make it so that the Red Army finally got in there. They gave the, the time to get the army in there into Stalingrad and start the reversal. All right. Thank you, Comrade. So what I want to do now is go back to the presentation. We have, I think, uh, three bits of video to show from the documentary from 1978, The Unknown War. Um, and before I start that up, uh, Comrade, would you like to give just a little bit of a, a background to The Unknown War and how it was kind of censored here in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it is known as The Unknown War. And it was done in 1978 and early 79 uh, by a cooperation of Soviets and Americans, uh, documentary makers. And they made this beautiful series, 20 series, each one 50 minutes or so about the Great Patriotic War. Okay. And it was narrated by Burt Lancaster a famous Hollywood actor from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. He died in 94. Now, Bird Lancaster was a fellow traveler of ours. He was, um, like Nixon, called him an enemy of the state. And uh, at the time of the un-American uh, committee shit that they had during the Cold War, uh, he, he fought against it. So, you know, he was very progressive. He wasn't a member of the party, but he was definitely on our side of the barricade, Bird Lancaster. So he, that's, that's the one who's talking. You're going to see it. On September 13th, the Germans managed to break into the city proper. Jubilant. Stalingrad seized. Gables announced the demise of the city named after Joseph Stalin. And medals were struck for the victors of Stalingrad. In the field, the issue of awards for valor was prodigal. The Wehrmacht was congratulating itself on its extraordinary achievements. They even started to build a new railroad, not realizing that the real battle of Stalingrad had not begun.
Their mood was one of soldiers who had won a great victory. The letters home were exuberant. Today I wrote to Elsa. We shall soon see each other. All of us feel that the end, victory, is near. For many of them, the end was very near. The battle for Stalingrad continued. The fighting took on a new character. Whereas previously the course of a campaign could be measured in miles, in Stalingrad, progress was measured in yards. In one three-day period, the center of the city changed hands five times. The front line was behind every pile of rubble. Stalingrad was a general's nightmare. The streets had been so cratered and filled with debris that tanks could not maneuver. There could be little air support. Situations changed so rapidly that artillery was useful only at point-blank range. The lines were only a hand grenade throw away from each other, sometimes as close as different floors in the same house. Often the fighting was hand-to-hand. -hand. skills, quick eyesight, steady nerves, the will to fight and kill. It was unlike any other great battle that had ever been fought. Soviet soldiers of different nationalities fought off all attacks for 58 days.
Pavlov's house. In honor of Sergeant Yakov Pavlov, commander of the group. In 1970, Pavlov told a story to people the age he was when he fought in 1942. Ivan Afanasyev fought shoulder to shoulder with Pavlov. He was blinded in the war, but doctors recently restored his eyesight. Here's the mill, Tamara. The fighting was particularly hard here. The Nazis repeated their attacks for days, and we had to hold out on this bank of the Volga. Over there, see that structure? They broke through to the Volga. We only had a narrow strip of land here. There is no land for us behind the Volga, said Vasily Tsaitsev, the sniper, giving Stalingrad a motto. Matvey Putilov, a signalman dying of wounds, put live wires in his mouth to re-establish communications. General Rodimtsev, a veteran of street fighting in Madrid in the Spanish Civil War. Rodimtsev brought his infantry division across the Volga to reinforce Stalingrad's defenders. His men were sent into action battalion by battalion as soon as they got off the ferries. General Chuikov's 62nd Army was becoming a legend. A German lieutenant wrote, The front is a corridor between burnt-out rooms. It's the thin ceiling between floors. There's a ceaseless struggle from noon to night. The street is no longer measured by meters, but by corpses. When September began, a German diarist had written, Are the Russians really going to fight on the very bank of the Volga? It's madness. At the end of October, he was writing, The Russians are not men, but some kind of cast-iron creatures. They never get tired and are not afraid of fire. dead comrades. We swear to the last drop of blood, to the last heartbeat, we shall defend Stalingrad. By the end of October, the city was cut in half. The Soviet positions had shrunk to a few pockets of stone nowhere more than 300 yards deep. General Chuikov exhorted, act more ruthlessly with your grenade, your tommy gun, your dagger, and your spade. Marshal Chuikov. Yes, Paminayu. Kadamu stayari na pasdenim komandam punkti. Our last command post was within 10 or 15 yards from the water's edge, I recall. 
It was very hard fighting between our 62nd Army, later the 8th Guards Army, and the Nazis. They had great superiority. Behind our backs was Great Russia and the Great Volga, Mother Volga. That was the ultimate goal of the Nazi attack. And at the same time, it became the grave for many of them. Mother Volga, a symbol of Russia's will, the river of her people's poetry, and a source of their wealth. flotilla made some hit-and-run raids on the German positions on the West Bank. It was aggressive enough to attract the attention of the Luftwaffe. Some of the defenders of Stalingrad were Soviet Marines. One German wrote of their fighting qualities. If all the buildings of Stalingrad are defended like this, then none of our soldiers will get back to Germany. All right, we're going to stop for another round of questions and comments real quick. Uh, yeah, I, I know this um, class is about the victory at Stalingrad, but... In that video, it was pretty amazing to me um, that back when this was made in 1978, they said that recently that soldier's uh, vision was restored. You know, um, today it's still seen as a miracle if people's vision could be restored. Yet here we are 50-ish years ago um, hearing that the Soviet Union uh, restored the vision of someone who lost it during the war. Just wanted to say that. Uh, yes, okay, just before I start, I want to quickly say uh, the Soviets' uh, ability to uh, do eye surgery was fantastic. In fact, they invented the LASIK operation, uh, which is uh, was, was formulated and actually changed somewhat, modified, but they were the inventors of the LASIK operation. Uh, Karen brought up about some of the heroism of the women. And I want to add to that in that originally in the war, uh, you know, uh, a lot of women wanted to be uh, snipers. And originally it was scoffed at. But they soon found out that women made better snipers than men uh, because of the composition of their bodies and, and, and body fat under the tissue. They were able to uh, submit uh, to uh, much lower temperatures. Uh, and also they were very 
much more patient than men. And uh, out of 2,000 snipers that they had, they incorporated into one brigade, uh, 1,500 died. Two of the greatest were uh, Rosa Kalinka, who was 20 years old and was ordered, they were ordered by uh, everybody to pull back. She refused. She wrote a letter to Stalin saying that she could not go back and she would get a deserted unit and go forward. And she was killed before her 20th birthday. She had 109 90 seconds. And one more, I just have to do 30 seconds. The greatest sniper in history is Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who was Ukrainian nationality. Uh, and actually, she was so feared that the German soldiers referred to her as that Russian bitch. She had almost 400, over 400 kills. And she was so famous that Russians who were hardened, they didn't even worry about airstrikes or artillery strikes when they knew she was in the area. Two minutes. Shitting in their pants. And they even actually sent out whole squads of snipers to try to get her. Uh, after a serious wound, she wanted to go back. Stalin told her he had other uh, an assignment for her, sent her to the United States. And she went to the United States with Eleanor Roosevelt to uh, to uh, basically raise the war fever uh, to get the United States into the war earlier. Thank you. Yeah, I just, um, I, I remembered as I was thinking about the order that Stalin gave is no step back. And I remember um, that the that the Marshal Stalin and all the other marshals, they had studied the um, the Nazi advancement into into Western Europe. And they had they they studied all of the uh, the panzer divisions and how they how they use the tanks to encircle and break through. And um, they actually um, use the the entirety of the Soviet Union from the Western side. It, they broke it up into three phases and they use the first phase with all the troops and the aircrafts and the tanks. And so when a breakthrough would happen and, and they would encircle, what they would, the Soviets would do is they would immediately retreat, consolidate, and those that were trapped in encirclements, um, that's when they would, um, that's those troops that would be encircled, they would, they would immediately retreat inwards and start the partisan campaigns and that's all the guerrilla warfares in Belarus. And then the, the ones that did retreat, they'd go back into the second line of phase. And then once the, once the Germans would go right in and break through and encircle again, they do the whole thing over again. They would retreat in that last, um, that last third phase, which is the gates of Moscow, which was the uh, Stalingrad, Battle of Stalingrad, was that last line of defense. Where the entire army was actually... Um, was actually strongest and consolidated. And that's when that whole German offensive stopped. And there, there the Soviets were able to hold it. And then they were able to break through and turn, turn the tide against the, uh, Nazi Germany. That's all. All right, thank you, comrade. We're gonna go ahead and go back to the presentation now. The end of the Stalingrad battle was also observed in Berlin. Like some gigantic firestorm, the battle had sucked into it whatever came near it. 800,000 men had died. Under the Russian counterstroke, the German armies in the south had only just escaped annihilation. 
Hitler's best hopes for victory over the Soviet Union had been extinguished. In Stalingrad itself, they began the long road of recovery. But first they congratulated themselves. The Nazis and their allies had lost five armies, a quarter of the enemy's strength on the Eastern Front. Stalingrad knew it was an inspiration to all who fought against Hitler. was recognized for what it was, a turning point in World War II. From now on in the East, the Wehrmacht's posture must be fundamentally defensive. From now on, the Red Army held the initiative. Kremlin Ambassador Harriman presented Stalin with a commemorative scroll signed by President Roosevelt on behalf of the American people. It designated Stalingrad the turning point of the war. British armorers fashioned a sword of honor the gift of King George VI to the people of Stalingrad. Churchill presented it to Stalin at the Tehran conference. It was given to representatives of Stalingrad by Marshal Bodoni. Comrades, the President of the Council of People's Commissars, the Supreme Commander-in-Chief of our Soviet Union, Comrade Stalin, has asked me to give you the Honor Sword, the gift of the British King George VI to the citizens of Stalingrad, to honor the heroic defense of the city. London too they celebrated. Sir Anthony Eden, the Foreign Secretary. Never in all its long, proud history has the German army sustained such an unmitigated disaster as the Red Army has inflicted upon it in the Battle of Stalingrad. Hitler has been outgeneraled, outmaneuvered, and outfought. And we've had one other additional bit of good news lately. 
of which I hope you all took careful note. It was with a feeling of deep relief that we all read that Hitler was to continue to control the German war machine. Defenders of Stalingrad, the victors of Stalingrad, rested briefly and then moved on, towards the front, by now well over a hundred miles to the west. They would fight in other battles, but none as hard as the one they had just finished. safe to leave their shelters now, safe for the civilians to take over the battlefield that had been their homes. There was not much left that was familiar. Churchill suggested to Stalin that the city should be left just as it was, a terrible monument forever. But the Soviet people needed the city to live again, and live it did after years and years of labor, a gleaming testament on the banks of Mother Volga. children of war, many without homes, without families, all security stripped for them by the rake of battle. 
alone, silent, uncomprehending. Mortal danger everywhere. Mines, booby traps, live ammunition, unexploded bombs. They could not yet begin to clear the debris. They warned each other to give things time to recover. Five years after the Battle of Stalingrad, the Soviet people unveiled their monuments to it. Leonid Brezhnev. General Secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union said this. Twenty-five years ago, our people, our Soviet system, won a great victory here on the Volga banks. Here, our Soviet motherland had to stand the most severe trial of its history. Here, on the Mamayev Hill, where they say by the end of the battle there was more metal than earth, all of us think now of the staunchness of our people, of all the things they had to endure without wavering, without any doubt, in imminent victory. The victory at Stalingrad was not only a victory, but a history-making feat of arms. people love flowers and treasure them. Flowers are precious to the Russians. Remembering their dead, they are prodigal with them. On the monuments of Stalingrad, cut forever in stone, there are, some say, a million names. Each is the name of one brave man or one innocent child who left others Alright, and then there's one more video that we have here. Uh, this is from National Geographic, but this is just a short two-minute video 
talking about the story behind uh, this statue in the Soviet Union, which is twice the size of the Statue of Liberty here in the United States. Мы сражались для, для этого, а сейчас должны, конечно, не забывать. It has the scale of America's National Mall and the seriousness of Pearl Harbor. Combine them, and that's what it feels like to visit Mamayev Kurgan, the memorial complex for the Battle of Stalingrad. Over one million Russian soldiers fell here. It is a place of healing for veterans, the city, and the entire country. The heart of the complex is the immense statue Motherland calls, nearly twice as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Its power lies not only in what is seen, but also in what lies beneath. Below its base lay the remains of nearly 35,000 unidentified soldiers. Its staggering size represents not only the huge price paid by the Russian people in the war, but also its enormous meaning in every Russian's heart. Это родина мать. Это действительно, ну, гордость придает. Mamayev Kurgan isn't just a place of mourning. It's also one of hope. Entering the Hall of Warrior Glory feels like stepping into a memorial service. The hand stretching from the ground carries the flame of peace from the fallen to the future generations. Both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. Although I found my visit to Mamayev Kurgan emotionally difficult, it is one I will never forget. All right, and we'll stop for our last round of questions and comments tonight. A fun thing to, or an interesting thing to note. Um, the German general who surrendered at Stalingrad, uh, General Friedrich von Paulus, um, in Soviet POW, he would later actually um, become anti-Nazi, and he joined an organization that was set up by German POWs and officers called the National Committee for a Free Germany. And this committee was set up by both uh, German Wehrmacht POWs in Soviet captivity and also German communists. Um, th and Friedrich von Paulus would actually return to um, not West Germany. He actually died in East Germany and he lived the rest of his life in East Germany. Um, so I found that, uh, and this is, I found this out by looking into some history, but it's, it's interesting what happened to a lot of, not all German POWs, you know, kept with their fascist loyalties. A lot of them joined the national committee and played a really big part in rebuilding the German democratic Republic. Yes, if you also want to speak about uh, Field Marshal uh, von Paulus, uh, a little fun fact is that uh, the Nazis actually tried to offer uh, Stalin's own son, Yakov, his uh, firstborn, in exchange for uh, the Field Marshal von Paulus and uh, Stalin. They paint him historically as somebody as being heartless in this exchange because he said, I will not trade a marshal for a lieutenant. But the seriousness is that Stalin understood the fact that this was a people's war and that all people not only must have to serve, but also suffer great sacrifice for, you know, the uh, homeland to stay safe in this war of genocide. 
So Stalin had to uh, proverbially bite the uh, bet and basically sacrifice his son in an unequal exchange. And, you know, as well as his son later dying in a concentration camp at the hands of the Nazis. So the basic history is that uh, von Paulus has that, you know, heavy history behind him and, you know, things that happened, the people that died to uh, uh, help bring him to the site of, uh, you know, fighting for the East German Republic. And uh, that's all. One of the things that I might like to show before we hang up for tonight is a slide that I had to go past at the beginning of this uh, just to give some uh, geographic context to this whole uh, presentation. This is from the beginning. This is a map of the region. Okay, so we I think that most of us are familiar with Ukraine and Russia on a map. We know what where Crimea is. It's right here. And you can see this is, you know, the globe. This is where we're at. We're in between Europe and Asia and between, you know, Russia proper and what, you know, we think of as the Middle East nowadays. This is the Caucasus region. You have the Black Sea over here on the left. You have the Caspian Sea over here on the right. The Nazis were advancing from Ukraine. Kiev is up above where this picture is that way. Kharkov is just a little bit up towards that way. Donetsk and Lugansk, of course, that we all know uh, what's going on right there, uh, right now. They're over here on this eastern border with, with Russia. There's Rostov on the Don, which is where the Don River lets out into the Sea of Azov. That's over here. You have Sevastopol over here on the west coast of Crimea. And this is the Kerch Peninsula, which connects over towards Russia. Stalingrad, or what is now called uh, Volgograd, um, unfortunately, because of the uh, Khrushchev period, is over here on the Volga River. And there's actually a canal that's been built since the war, uh, the Great Patriotic War. It wasn't there then that connects the Volga and the Don, which is uh, very smart when you consider that now the Caspian Sea actually has connections to the Black Sea, which connects to the Mediterranean and basically world trade. Um North of all of this is Moscow, of course. Uh, Russia's a big country, so it's a bit far up north. Don't think it's just up here somewhere. Um, and this is the Caucasus region in general. These are the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, here's Georgia, where Stalin is from. Um, and then down here in Azerbaijan, you have the city of Baku and the oil fields there. And south of that, you have Iran and India which is southeast of that. And remember at this time, I believe India was still um, under British control. Or, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure of that. And so that's over towards that way. And, and remember that Iran and India are, are large, large regions that Hitler wanted control of because Hitler just had Europe. That wasn't nearly as big as, as this region over here. So I just wanted to give that people for some geographic context, because sometimes when you're going through the history of the Eastern Front, nobody explains this kind of stuff to people. And we're all just left to take in all these names of, you know, Eastern Slavic places that we don't know where they're at. And so I just wanted to include that so we all know what we're talking about here. Okay. The victory at Stalingrad was spectacular. Germany and its Axis allies, Romania, Italy, and Hungary, suffered one and a half million casualties. The elite Sixth Army had been liquidated. 
In Stalingrad alone, 200,000 Wehrmacht soldiers perished. The proud six army soldiers who paraded down the Paris Champs-Élysées in June 1940 in their shiny leather boots were now vanquished and survivors faced a long trudge in the steppe through snow drift towards the POW camps. Partisans all over Nazi-occupied Europe were energized and resistance spread like wildfire. Stalingrad was an immeasurable boost to Soviet and allied morale. Final victory over the Third Reich seemed certain. Stalingrad was a turning point of, double, of World War II. There was a before and an after Stalingrad. After Stalingrad, it was no longer a question of whether or not Germany would lose the war, but how and when. In Stalingrad, the Red Army seized the strategic initiative and never lost it until the Soviet flag was raised on top of the Reichstag. All over the world, from America to China, everyone was quick to grasp the significance of Stalingrad. In Britain, it was hailed as a salvation of European civilization. When comparing to World War I, which was very fresh still in those days, the Washington Post wrote on February 2nd that Stalingrad was the Battle of Mon, Verdun, and the Second Mon all rolled into one. Those were the bloodiest battles of World War I. The New York Times on February 4th said Stalingrad was among the most decisive battles in the long history of war. In the scale of intensity, destructiveness, and horror, Stalingrad has no parallel, a life and death conflict which encompasses the earth. And by the way, uh, comrade, uh, about this series, uh, The uh, Unknown War, uh, it was published, like I said, in 78, 79. But if you remember, in December 79, the Red Army intervened in Afghanistan. And you know what happened? The U.S. canceled all this. That's why it became unknown. And uh, personally, I never knew about it until last week when I found out about the unknown war that became unknown. All right. Thank you, Comrade and Comrade General Secretary Angelo. Would you like to give an ending statement for the class? Yes. Uh, how's everybody doing? First of all, uh, when I lived in the Soviet Union in 1976, I visited that area with that big, big statue. Uh, and it was very solemn. There's a flame uh, there for burning and people. Uh, it's very interesting. When everybody got married <clears throat> in the Soviet Union, <clears throat> they went to a World War II, big World War II monument to take a picture with their wedding clothes, their wedding dresses. And that was a custom. Uh, that's how much it was embedded in the people's minds of what they lost. Every family lost somebody. Uh, every family. And this country at the time, we were protected by the uh, Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. We really never had any problems here as far as destruction from foreign invaders. Um, as far as the Soviet Union is concerned, those young comrades who had never had a chance to visit or see the Soviet Union, you missed a, a thing for the lifetime. 
uh, and right now the Soviet Union doesn't exist. And Stalingrad is called Volgograd. Uh, everyone should keep an eye on that. There are going to be a now new attempts again to bring back the name Stalingrad officially and get rid of the name Volgograd, which came out of the uh, attacks on, on Comrade Stalin during the Khrushchev uh, period. So um, keep an eye on what's going on there and watch. And of course, more important right now, what's going on with fascism in the Ukraine. 2014, the fascists struck again. Only this time they had the help of the United States government. Uh, they take out tax money and they're giving actually billions to these people, to these fascists. And they are fascists. Don't kid yourself. And the American people don't know about it. It's tough. Our job to explain what's going on in the Ukraine today, the fight against fascism in 2023, is going to be a big job. But we got to be on it. Don't allow anybody to go by us if you hear the story of Ukraine butt in and, and explain to people this is not a democracy. What happened in 2014 was all over again. Hitler uh, and, and NATO today is actually the fourth right. That's what they're doing. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And what we're going to end with today is the song uh, Katusha, which is a song that was uh, I think wrote before the war, uh, but that is very important uh, when it comes to the Soviet Union and was uh, remembered by a lot of veterans very uh, well. So let me go ahead and share my screen again for that.
All right. Thank you for coming, comrades, and have a great night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.